0: I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Sarah Camp Milam. You're listening to Gravy. Gravy.
1: Gravy. Gravy.
0: Gravy. Hmm.
2: During our five part series on baking in Appalachia, we've been focusing on one special bakery in Western North Carolina Walnut Family Bakery. Though, over the years, this same space has been known by many other names.
0: In previous episodes, we heard about the bakers who have risen early, stoked the wood fire, and made the place their own. And we now know that baking in a wood-fired oven pretty much requires a specific lifestyle. How fresh flowers differ from commodity flowers, and what small cottage bakeries can and can't do for new business
2: owners. If you haven't heard those four episodes, Consider listening to them before digging in here. You'll have a lot more context. In this final episode,
0: we look at community. Every community has a gathering space. The new owners of the bakery in Marshall hope Walnut Family Bakery can be that place. For townsfolk, for tourists, and most importantly, for their employees. How are they visualizing their role in the town? Irina Zhorov reported this piece. For
3: cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith.
4: Every town's got townies. And in Marshall, North Carolina, Rob Amberg and Paul Gerwitz are two of the finest, They each moved there in the early 1970s and met at a party. Rob tells the story.
5: There were people playing music and singing and dancing, and all these men kept on coming in and then going back out and sitting in the parking lot. And and I'm feeling increasingly isolated, you know, with long hair and a beard.
4: This was rural Appalachia in the 1970s, a pretty remote and tight-knit community.
5: The local population is very centered around family and church and their land.
4: But then this other guy comes up to Rob, and he's also a long hair.
5: And he looks at me and he says, all these local guys are going out to their car drinking moonshine. Let's go out to my truck and smoke a joint.
4: Rob and Paul have been friends ever since. Both have stayed in Marshall and made it their home through the ups and downs. Paul says when he arrived, it was a thriving town.
6: There were the sunny side and the shady side florists. On uh, opposite right. sides of the road, there were, you know, a couple little cafes and <laughs> used car dealers. Car, and Three car dealerships. Th- three car dealerships, yeah.
4: Marshall was where people went from the surrounding country for all their needs. It was also the necessary passing point between Knoxville and Asheville.
5: Old, old-timers talk about Marshall being so crowded on Saturday afternoons that people were actually walking in the streets because there wasn't room on the sidewalks.
4: Then, right around the time both Rob and Paul arrived, several new highways and bypasses were built to Asheville and other nearby towns. And old roads were straightened and widened. Big box stores started coming in nearby.
6: So the town started withering and dying, and it took... I don't know, 10 years maybe before, it was pretty dead. There were just a few local businesses left, and it stayed that way for a couple decades, pretty much.
4: The population of Madison County, where Marshall is located, was at a high of around 22,500 in the 1940s. By the 1970s, it had dropped by nearly 30%. But little by little, really starting in the 1990s, other people like Rob and Paul started showing up. Some, like Paul, stumbled into Marshall by accident. Some came for the natural beauty, which with its mountains and streams and the French broad river running through, is truly stunning. Others came because of the area's reputation as a stronghold of Americana music or its population of incredible artists and craftspeople in pretty much every trade. One of the first businesses opened by such a newcomer in 1997 was a bakery.
6: Rob and I both were probably some of her first customers.
4: The baker was Jennifer Lapidus, and she produced European-style hardy loaves in a wood-fired oven. Paul remembers stopping by on the way home from work on Fridays and buying two or three loaves. By the time he got home some 10 minutes away, one loaf would be mostly gone.
6: That was one of the great events in the history of Madison County for me was the opening wow. of that bakery.
4: When Jennifer left in 2008, she rented the space to other bakers, each of whom ran their own version of the place. Everyone who baked there came from outside Marshall, and yet they tried to build community through their work in one way or another. Jennifer started pizza nights to bring out people who lived nearby, a tradition upheld by those who followed. Some of the bakers ran workshops, building a network of participants who came and baked together. Others sold their products in small local markets to serve neighbors. Rob and Paul would buy bread from each of these bakers. But the way they tell it, the people who frequented the bakery over the years were almost exclusively the newcomers. Rob says the locals, especially older people, were on a different wavelength. He's a documentary photographer and got to know many people through his work.
5: When I first moved here and I would go stay with this woman, Delly Norton. And Deli's routine in the morning, it was the same every morning. She'd make a big pan of biscuits. She'd make gravy. If the hens had laid eggs, we'd have eggs. Maybe she'd have some canned applesauce. Those were breakfasts at Delly's house all the time. Delly loved what she would call light bread, which was just a loaf of white bread, and she loved to basically make mayonnaise sandwiches. White bread, mayonnaise, white bread. That was it.
4: That was in the 1970s. And he says some things haven't changed. Hardy breads, which have been the focus of the bakers who lived and worked at the Marshall Spot, may still not be appealing to the old timers.
5: Biscuits, white biscuits. And cornbread is, is still the you know, main bread staples around here.
4: Paul adds that many locals didn't have the time or the budget to make a special trip for one pantry staple, bread, or even for treats. They could just pick it all up during their weekly grocery run for way cheaper. This is not a wealthy area. There are, of course, exceptions. People eager to try new things exist in every sector of society. But in some ways, it's like the dynamic from that party all those years ago persisted in the everyday. With locals on one side of the room, newcomers on the other.
6: There has always been, and there continues to be, a pretty big divide between the families who've been here forever and the people who are coming now. And I'm not sure it's anybody's fault. I think it's partly in the, this, you know, as Rob was describing. This was an isolated count, county where family life and friends and you know history meant a lot.
4: Jennifer sold the place in late 2020, and the new owners, Camille Cogswell and Drew Detomo, are also newcomers, though Camille's originally from nearby Asheville. Like the bakers who came before them, they're seasoned professionals. They know how to make really, really good food. Their offerings will be different. They'll still make bread, but Camille in particular is a trained pastry chef, so they'll sell pastries too. But there's something else that sets them apart. Unlike the previous iterations of the bakery where people paid to take classes or could really only socialize at the space on pizza nights, Camille and Drew plan to run a retail operation. Anyone will be able to come by on the weekends, order at a staffed counter, hang out with a coffee, and stock up on bread for the week. They want their neighbors to gather on the property. Their business model and very ethic is built around the sense of camaraderie and care.
7: If we're providing nothing for our community, then what's the point?
4: This is Drew. This whole series, I haven't talked to Drew because he's still living mostly in Philadelphia, where he and Camille were before they bought the place in Marshall. He's finishing up a project as a food consultant on a TV series called Servant. I caught him on a break at his new home, where he's still a bit like a fish out of water, much like townies Rob and Paul were when they arrived.
7: I grew up in Philly and, you know, grew up in a city atmosphere and lived in a city atmosphere my whole life.
4: Marshall, if you haven't gathered yet, is not a city. You can't really walk anywhere populated. You're probably not going to run into anyone unless you're on the one main street in town. He and Camille have neighbors, but each house is its own little kingdom behind some trees occupying its own hill or holler. The density and urban communality he's used to aren't present in Marshall.
7: Like, I love, like when we were in South Philly, like, you go out and shovel. I shovel my next, both my next door neighbors. Like, I like that stuff because I know that little old lady next door, she, when she sweeps, she sweeps our side too a little bit more. Or if our trash knocks over, one of our neighbors is going to pick it up. I just love that so much.
4: The absence of that is perhaps all the more reason Drew is invested in creating a space where that kind of neighborliness can thrive.
7: We can't do this on our own. Nobody can. Life becomes, you know, more colorful, more beautiful, the more people you have in your circle. And, and I think we always think about the table. You know, it's like, I want a big table. I always do. I don't want to make my table smaller. When I have dinner, I want it to be huge.
4: So the question is, how do you make the table huge in a place with divisions? Camille says it's something they talk about constantly. And they have some ideas. For one, they want their food to be approachable.
1: All of our breads and food are going to be simple and accessible and relatable because that is something that uh, both Drew and I have focused on in our personal food careers. Relatability, nostalgia, familiarity, even if it's something that people may never have eaten before, it still feels comforting and familiar in some way.
4: She may not be from Marshall, but she is from the area and wants to include Southern staples, like pie.
1: Generally, everyone is always excited about pie.
4: Next, they want to make sure different kinds of people know about them. Right now, they have a presence on social media, but they're thinking about more grassroots marketing approaches too, like flyers and downtown Marshall, maybe an email list they'll maintain that might bring in more locals. Also, they want to keep prices as low as is sustainable for them. And they want to make sure their neighbors can actually buy their stuff. They need business from some of the 11 million yearly tourists from Asheville, but they don't want them snapping everything up. Some of these things, they don't know how they'll do yet.
1: We're going to be receptive to community feedback, and we want this to be a reflection of us, and we want to be true to ourselves, but we also are going to be listening and paying attention to what this community needs from us and how we can make that happen.
4: The bakery is still not open. Drew hasn't been there full-time, and they've had to do more construction than they expected on the space. As they wait and plan, Camille says she's been doing the other most important thing she can think of—meeting people— building relationships, slowly gaining her footing in her new home.
1: I went to the the Madison County Rodeo for the first time the the last month, and I was like, whoa, this is a totally different world than I'm used to. But I dig it, you know? It's really fun and great to, like, learn to be a part of both of those worlds. And hopefully, you know, in our business— It can speak to everyone. You know, we want to be a part of this community. And that includes both of those groups of people and, like, bridging that, too.
2: When we come back, we'll hear how Camille and Drew want to build community. Irina Jouroff will pick up the story after this quick break. Hi, it's Melissa, and if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So, go ahead. Follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell them Gravy Said Hey!
3: Maker's Mark Bourbon is aged to taste in Loretto, Kentucky. The Samuels family uses locally grown, soft red winter wheat and sources water from a lake on the distillery's campus. Every Maker's Mark label is printed and die-cut by hand on an antique press, and each bottle is hand-dipped in their signature red wax. All the details matter when distilling quality bourbon. Since Maker's Mark sold its first case of bourbon to the Keeneland Racecourse in Lexington, they have perfected the craft of distilling American whiskey. For their dedication to making great bourbon, and for their support of the Southern Foodways Alliance, we thank them. Makers Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. When Camille and Drew bought the bakery in Marshall,
4: they wanted an opportunity to make food that people would enjoy without killing themselves in the process. They'd both had intense restaurant jobs for years. They were feeling a bit burnt out. And Drew was in the midst of a frustrating four-year journey to open his own Italian restaurant in Philly, running into obstacles at every turn. When Camille called Drew with this crazy idea to buy a bakery in rural North Carolina, he barely stopped to think about it.
7: I remember specifically saying, just do it.
4: So they did. Now they're settling into their new town and figuring out what the business will look like. What they want to be is a vital kind of space for their community. And community here is a broad term. Here's Drew.
7: Probably my favorite thing about restaurants is that they're a community, you know, inside of these bigger communities. If I could provide a space for one of my employees to have a family and raise a family off the income we provide or, you know, or be a part of that and they're happy and watch their kids grow up in the restaurant, like... It's the greatest feeling on earth, you know, or watching young guests come when they're kids and enjoying what we have and then growing up with us. That's the best part. And then being able to have that for our neighborhood and be able to provide them with bread, sustenance, like that's cool. That's, that's such a gift that we get to give. And it's a gift for us to give it.
4: So aside from cooking amazing, relatable food, listening to feedback, marketing in all the right places, Camille says they're also focusing on something a bit more slippery, hospitality.
1: When somebody comes into the restaurant, it doesn't matter who they are. You, you have to show them the utmost um, respect and also um, excitement. Always give them, you know, something to brighten their day. Uh, you know, it's it's all about like having fun and uh, sharing an experience with people and and being excited about the food and being together. Drew
4: clarifies that hospitality doesn't just extend to the guests.
7: We take care of ourselves first and foremost. And that doesn't mean just financially. That, that, that means just making sure we're in the right headspace to be doing what we're doing, especially because it's so intense. You know, it's just it's a hard job.
4: Next come the employees when they actually hire some.
7: And I think that's mainly making sure that they're financially appropriately compensated mm-hmm. for what we believe their, their labor is worth. And, and I'd like to think that's, that's high.
4: Or taking into account that it's a rural place, maybe it's rethinking how they pay, like tacking on an hour of pay for travel. Camille and Drew vehemently agree that taking care of their employees is key, but they have slightly different styles of doing that. When they worked at restaurants in the past, they developed their own ways of leading their respective teams.
1: His uh, team always felt kind of like, a a band of ragtag pirates, you know, and, and mine was kind of like a, um, I was systemized and put, um, you know, organized, had recipe binders, all that kind of stuff that actually just like makes your day to day life easier. So you can focus on the, um, on what you're doing and, like, having fun with it so you're not worried about that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I was, like, uh, taking people from the chaos and being like, hey, come over here, where it's, like, kind of chill, but we have a lot of fun, you know?
4: Ultimately, they say, they land in the same place, a safe, supportive work environment. That allows them to focus on their guests, who come in last place in the hierarchy of priorities after Camille and Drew themselves and their employees
7: and a lot of people might think that's backwards, but in our opinion, we can't give them the best if we're not operating at our best.
4: There's a broader shift happening in the hospitality industry, a correction to prevailing attitudes that often fail to take care of the workers at all. More restaurants are offering flexible schedules, healthcare benefits, and experimenting with higher, more equitable pay structures for staff. Camille and Drew are part of that reevaluation. But guests are far from an afterthought to them. Drew especially can't seem to wait to get people in the door. Like, it'll ease some of his anxiety about leaving a beloved city and lifestyle for something so different.
7: I know it's beautiful down there. I know there's beautiful people too. And I love meeting new people every day. But it's just, I have to learn how to socialize in different ways. And and of course, that's harder without... a a level of connection where I'm just this guy down here. Whereas when we have the bakery up and running, it's like, I I like to connect to people through what we do for a living and hospitality. That's like one of the main things I like to connect to people with.
4: It's how he finds his way in the world, to his people. And if the bakery is an expression of that openness, it's inevitable that other seekers will come seek them out. So all that's left... Is opening. We started this series in episode one at a construction site. The bakery was completely disassembled. There was a trench in the floor, walls stripped to the studs. But work is almost done now. So we walk over to take
1: a look.
2: So
1: <laughs> we're now in the front room of the bakery.
4: This is where people will order. It's small, clean, white, gold-accented light fixtures, blonde wood counter.
1: I think this room has turned out really nice. It's just going to be like a really nice place for people to to hang out with us, you know?
4: Then we go into the kitchen. The room is tiled in white, with a few industrial stainless steel sinks, concrete floors. Simple.
7: Just keep it simple. I feel like the people will be the, the art You know, like everybody who walks in this space, you know, the feeling of this space is what makes it feel alive, not the things we put on the
6: walls.
4: They expect customers will wander back into the bakery, check things out, pour a coffee. They're not even putting a coffee station in the front room, but rather in the bakery itself. So guests have an excuse to mosey in. The walk-in fridge has finally been assembled. That means they can soon start ordering ingredients and moving in. Camille's first order of business.
1: Flour, large cases of butter. Those are probably top two priorities. Well, how's it feel standing in this space? It's really
3: exciting.
1: And it's, it's, it's huge. Uh, it's huge to look at it now, and I'm really excited for all the people who,, um, you know, used to live here and bake here to come to come see it and experience it and like bake here with us again, maybe, you know? Um, but it it looks really good and worked. I'm really excited to to just get in here and work out of the space. I
7: can't wait to do my own food things. So when we started like designing this and looking at this space, I was like, I had all the, and Camille was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's because it's been four years of me kind of dreaming up spaces, you know, getting close to signing leases and start designing.
4: In Philly, Drew wanted his restaurant to have a certain feel to it.
7: I wanted it small. I wanted two people to feel like they're not in an empty cavern at 5 p.m. on a Tuesday. I wanted them to feel like the life of the party. And then on Friday night at 7 p.m., it to be breaming, you know, like almost like bursting at the at the rim there.
4: It wasn't to be. During one of the low points in his attempt to open a place in Philly, Drew remembers sitting in the basement of a restaurant with a good friend of his.
7: It was, like, late at night with him, and I was saying how fed up I was, and I just want to, like, put a deck oven in my backyard in South Philly and start baking bread, because I've always loved to bake. And how he was kind of sharing his same kind of emotional, you know, feelings about the Philly food scene and how he just wants to move to the mountains and open up a ridiculous, multi-course fine dining, almost, like, obscure...
4: Since then, his friend got a job at a restaurant in the Catskills, and Drew and Camille bought the place in Marshall, a 400-square-foot bakery with a lot of heart.
7: I texted him. I was like, look at us. We're living out that funny little pipe dream we, we were kind of, like, depressingly talking about in your basement, but it's so good. It's so fortunate.
4: Drew will finish his work in Philly in July and return to Marshall permanently. He and Camille need a month together to get their systems in place and practice working out of their new space. They plan to open in September. Until then, they'll keep getting out there and building relationships. They met Rob and Paul, the townies, soon after moving in. Paul says he's known them just a year, but they're already some of his favorite people. The kind of people that don't know a stranger.
6: And Camille has a personality, and Andrew does too. I think a lot of it is who you are and how welcoming you are to people and how open you are to meeting people where they are.
4: That's important when you're offering food or an experience that may be outside some people's norm as part of your new business. Rob says bridging divides is also about making an effort. If his experience is any indication, Camille is doing just that – he says that he met Drew and Camille at a party, and a week or two later, he got a text from her.
5: Are you home today? And I texted back, yes, I'm home. And she shows up with this absolutely beautiful pie that she, everybody it, she brought us all pies, these people that she had met, you know, and I was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. And she stayed and visited. That's the thing around here. If you go... To see somebody, you go over there, you know you're going to be there a while because you have to sit down and visit and spend time. And she did that. You know, it was great. The pie was incredible.
4: Now Rob says he's hoping the bakery carries bear claws and maybe some sausage biscuits. There's some pressure around the opening, considering the legacy of the place and how long it's taken to get the bakery up and running. But Camille and Drew are not letting it get to them it's just breakfast,
7: you know, or it's just a loaf of bread, you know, or... And and I mean that in the way that, like, we used to say it in the restaurant, it's just dinner. Like, calm down, do a great job, but, like, it's just dinner. Let's remember that, you know, and we're just trying to make people happy.
4: But isn't that the hardest thing to do? To turn flour into bread. Good bread requires skill. But to turn strangers into friends, into community, is the world's greatest alchemy.
0: Gravy was reported and produced by Irina Zhoroff, a reporter and writer based in Boone, North
2: Carolina. Special thanks to audio engineer Bethany Sands.
0: We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor
2: music. Gravy's publisher is Mary Beth Lassiter. Additional editing for this episode comes by way of Olivia Terenzio. Katie King is our fact checker.
0: Visit us at southernfoodways.org to watch films, read your way through our event bibliographies, or listen to this podcast.
2: Oh, and while you're there, make a donation. Or become a member. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. I'm Melissa Hall.
0: And I'm Sarah Camp Milam. Excited to lap
2: up another episode of Gravy? Tell a friend or... Pass the gravy boat. There's plenty to go around.